0: For those of you who were here last week, we began a survey of the book of Job. It'll be very short, only two sermons. It's a a short time to look at the entire book of Job. But um, last week, I maintained that Job, viewed rightly, is a gospel-centered book. It's a book of hope. Okay. And this gospel is that Job looks forward in the future in hope to a God-man who serves as an arbiter. This is the way that Job speaks of it very explicitly. As an arbiter between God and man to become our substitute for our transgressions. Like very much the gospel. This, but this is very clearly seen in Job 9 verses 32 through 35. If you missed those verses last week, you might want to jot them down just to remind yourself how clearly you can see the gospel looking back uh, Job, and not only does Job hope for this, as we saw, but somehow he has assurance and knows that his redeemer lives, and that he will see him in the flesh, uh, in the resurrection, according to Job 19:25 through 27. That's where we saw that. So it's striking how clear. The, the mystery of the gospel is revealed in Job in light of Jesus, something that Job knew somehow. He had a hope for it. It was there, but he didn't know it clearly like we do. We, in light of Jesus, can look back at Job and see Jesus is all over it. The, the gospel is all over this. But last week, uh, but that was last week's point, Okay, that hope was there, that Job sees the gospel, he hopes in the gospel, but hope was only half of the story. Okay, as I told you, it kind of starts high, then goes low, and then ends even higher. So it's just the turning point upward when we hit the bottom of the gospel, where Job starts to see that his Redeemer lives. And what we'll find this week are not the, uh, the hope of the gospel, not the, fruit, uh, or the, the, the root of the gospel, but the fruit of the gospel. Okay, this is where we start to move upward and see some of the, the outworkings of Job's faith. That is, what does life look like? When Job is obedient to the gospel, and by extension, what does it look like for you when you become obedient to the gospel and live out the commands to believe in Jesus? Well, again, the text is Job 42. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 this morning. That is the whole chapter of 42. Church, these are the words of God. As such, let's give attention to them this morning. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his two friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He and also seven, or he had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after Job, and after this, Job lived a hundred and forty years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of. Days. The Word of God for His people. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Job this week, we looked last week at the beginning, which was quite a grim picture. This is a different picture. We see so much hope, so much fruit, so much goodness in Job's life. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the balance between these two extremes. Extreme suffering and grief and hardship but also blessing lord i pray that you would help us to have the wisdom to know how to look at the book of job and see it for what it is see it rightly in light of jesus and what jesus uh, brings to us i pray father that you would uh, lead me as i speak about this book to speak rightly about it i pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you oh god my rock my redeemer I pray these things in your son Jesus' name amen, amen. Well, since we obviously don't have time to read the entirety of the book of Job here, I'll bring you up to speed uh, to where we began in chapter 42. So we skipped over quite a lot uh, from what we looked at the first couple chapters last week, and then here we end in chapter 42. But I want to do so by way of illustration as we bring you up to speed. Now, I want you to think the, the parents in this room. Have any of you parents ever had uh, the privilege, and I think it's a privilege, where you're sitting in the room, maybe in your living room, and your kids are in the other room, and you're listening in on your, your two children or maybe uh, your child and a child of someone else's, and they're bickering back and forth in the other room? and you're just kind of listening, and waiting to see how it's going to end, how it's going to fall out, right? So, so you're over here, they're over there, and they're having their argument, and you're just kind of quietly listening in from the other room. You don't hop up and go in there, you just kind of wait it out and see what happens. Now, perhaps you saw what the situation was, but you allowed them to fight it out for a moment to see what comes of it and then use it as a teaching lesson. I know that this is something that we do. What are you gonna do? How are you gonna react? What does wisdom look like in this situation, child? Well, usually in those scenarios, scenarios, only one of the children are right, and even they, if you allow the child to talk long enough, will usually wander off in a direction where they probably shouldn't go. And even there, you're probably not right in the end if you just let it go too far. So uh, th- that's something of what you get here in this last section of Job, okay? They've talked a lot by this point. A lot has been said. Even the right person has said a lot. Okay, So you may not have realized it, but God has been very, very patiently listening to Job and his friends while they argue with one another. There is a long gap of silence where God does not speak when Job and his friends are kind of going back and forth. At the very beginning he speaks and at the very end he speaks, but all in the middle they're fighting. Right? Job is maintaining he's righteous, and his friends are saying, no, you're not. If you are righteous, these things wouldn't be happening to you. Okay, So then suddenly in chapter 38, God appears out of a whirlwind and sets the story straight. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God says, dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Okay, I want you to think about those words and the posture that God is Coming at these people with it is the kind of, listen here, little man, moment from God. As he comes to uh, Job and his friends, he's going to set the story straight and show what is going on. So here uh, he goes on for four chapters after chapter 38, asking Job if his wisdom compares with God's. Okay, So now God is actually talking to Job, asking Job, where is your wisdom in all this? Hate take computer locked. <laughs> so he's asking Job, where is uh, Job in all of this? And, and Job really doesn't have much of an answer. Job, where is your wisdom when it comes to the creation of all things? Uh, how does your wisdom compare with God's? Are you even able to give me an answer, Job? And Job essentially says, no, like I, I don't really have much to say. He, uh, so God questions about the natural order of things and how one might go about building something like the foundations of the earth. What do you have to say about that, Job? How do you build life? How, how do you create the world? Or the kind of questions that God is asking Job. And Job clearly has no idea, just like none of you have any idea. How do, how do you create the foundations of the world? I don't know. I can't do it. We need God's stuff to do that, right? We, we don't have our own stuff to even start uh, building on, on earth and life and all of that. So, so God's questioning him. And then God begins to ask about uh, the taming of the Leviathan and the behemoth. This is where it starts to get a little bit weird. The, the, the Leviathan and Behemoth, which to us seems quite bizarre. Uh, but this is actually an ancient poetic way of speaking about embodied supernatural evils. Okay, Leviathan is kind of a, a sea monster, right? This, this dragon-like thing that kind of creeps upon the ground. And you don't have much of a reason why it's so mean, but it is definitely mean. It, e- it eats people. It, it sinks ships. It does this kind of thing. So Leviathan is the beast of the sea. You heard that language before in the Bible. okay? The, the dragon of Revelation, the, the serpent of old. okay? This is the imagery that Job is giving for us. So Leviathan is representative of the problem of evil that man has no enduring answer for. We haven't solved that yet, the problem of evil. Some of us think that we've solved it, but we really haven't solved completely the problem of evil. And Job doesn't necessarily give us an answer for this either. Job is giving an answer to Job. But uh, it's not the answer as to why his suffering is happening. Okay? Job doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why Job is suffering. God simply gives an answer to how we should respond and how we should perceive God in light of the evil that we see around the world, even uh, injustices, right? Something bad happens to you. We ask why, and God doesn't usually give us an answer why other than sin, which just backs it up a little bit further. Okay, sin. What about sin? Why sin? Okay, why the serpent? Why the evil? Why the dragon? Why the Leviathan? Okay. Okay. That's where Job is causing us to kind of wrestle with these tensions that all humans have. What are we to think of this? And God's answer isn't, well, you're going to figure it out. And I'm going to give you all the answers. It's no. How do you respond? Okay? How do you move forward? So notice Job's posture after the God encounter in Job 42.2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So what's Job thinking about? He, well, he sees God is sovereign and justifiably so. He's in, in a real way saying that God has brought these things on me. He's sovereign. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. And yet here we are, and God's just. Okay? He's sovereign and justifiably so. He says in verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I love the way that he speaks about that. It's too wonderful for me. I, I can't even really utter it is what he's saying. Verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's beautiful language, but it's humbling, isn't it? So we think about Job encountering God through the whirlwind as you encounter God through the whirlwind of your events that happen in life where we don't have an answer for it. Seems like a whirlwind. I don't know where the suffering comes from, but it's it's humbling as we've heard about God. We know who God is. We hear of him by the hearing of the ear and we even speak about him. But then you really need God. In those moments of suffering. So this is a humbling experience for Job. Through unspeakable suffering, Job caught a glimpse of God that he never understood. He sees God in a new angle. And the revelation of God is too wonderful for him to utter, he says. And interestingly, Job repents. Did you catch that? Job repents. Repents. I don't know if you feel that tension when I say Job repents with what we had last week and what we thought about last week and the, the repeated motif uh, that Job brings us. Do you remember the repeated motif through Job is that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. OK, so someone might ask, well, what is his repentance for if he didn't sin with his lips? Right. If Job is blameless and sinless and he's doing all these things, as it tells us in the beginning, and then Job repents, you might be wondering, well, how. How do you bring these two together, right? The answer is not explicitly given in the text, but it would appear that Job's repentance is a sort of reconciliation moment, okay, where him and God get on the same page, where he realizes that though he might have spoken of God what is right and even sinless in a manner, he might not have had his heart in the right place while saying it. I want you to think about that. There, there's a way of saying all the right things, but in the wrong way, where your heart isn't connected to what you're saying. Like you're saying yes, what you're saying is right, but is your are you do you really comprehend what you're saying? Okay, we we get this way in life where we know the right answer to a problem, like the problem of evil. Christians often try to answer this. Well, what I'm saying in a in a sense is true. Well, sin is the problem. Okay. Let's back it up a little bit. Do you realize like, it, that you still have an answer it? This is what I'm saying. Where Job's realizing that he isn't as knowledgeable about the situation as he might have thought that he was. Okay? So Job is like a child that is right but has immaturely expressed his justification for why he's right. Okay? In, in humility, Job realizes the best declaration that man can have of his justification is not from his own mouth but from God's mouth. God is the one that ultimately declares us righteous or unrighteous. And beyond that, there isn't much man can say of whether we are actually righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust. And this is something that we must apply to our own lives. Okay? Our justification before God must be approached from the angle of the gospel, from the good news of Jesus Christ. God is who declares us righteous, not ourselves. We don't declare ourselves righteous. That is why Job repents. Job repents that though he might be righteous, yes, he said the right things, he is not his own redeemer. His, his right answer can't get him out of the problem that he is in. Okay, that's, that's our problem. Where We think that we have all the right answers and we think that that saves us. It doesn't. It doesn't save us. He cannot tame Leviathan any more than you can. Okay, We can't tame the problem of evil. Only God in Christ is the one capable of taming Leviathan, that problem of evil that comes to bite and snap at us all. So we reconcile that Job did not sin with his lips, with his repentance... That Job is not utterly and sovereignly sinless, irrespective of God. When God looks at him, God can still see that he isn't the exception to the rule that all man is uh, is a sinner, right? That all have sin and come short of the glory of God. Job and Jesus aren't the two exceptions to this. So it's not that Job is completely sinless. It's that he is right, but at the end of the day, his justification needs to come from God alone. So God is the one who is sovereign and declares us righteous in the gospel. Okay, that was essentially just a reiteration of last week. It's important for you to see, though, that this gospel reconciliation happens before things are set right in the narrative. OK, it happens before. And that's really important. There are no fruits until there are roots. OK, last week we spoke about roots, didn't we? The, the roots of bitterness That's what I was talking about and how that causes all kinds of trouble for those who fail to obtain their grace through suffering. OK, this is what happens when we we go through suffering and we don't. Think of it rightly. When we fail to obtain that grace, all kinds of sin can come of that. If we try to bottle it up and figure it out all on our own and we, we let that bitterness sink in. But following this theme of roots, I want you to see the opposite of the roots of bitterness seen in our text today. You can turn there if you want. Job fourteen seven through 9 says this. It's worth jotting down if nothing else because it's kind of the theme for this sermon. Job fourteen seven through 9 says this. For there is hope for a tree if it be cut down that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at, a, at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Now, we should note that Job didn't suddenly believe in God after he emerged from the whirlwind. This wasn't his saving moment where Job became a Christian, we might say. Okay? Job had roots of faith, they were there all along. But, but God had just cut down Job's tree. Right? He had a significant loss. Okay? He didn't uh, obliterate his faith, though. That's not what happened through all of this. But he did severely prune his faith in such a way that Job would never be the same. Okay? His faith was changed in God through this suffering experience. I, I think of John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness in Matthew 3, saying, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root. Same kind of imagery, isn't it? The axe is laid to the root. He's talking to the Israelites here. It says, It Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. There's a sense of humility that John the Baptist is bringing. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, So you have this similar imagery of this severe pruning. Like the, the the bad being cut away, taken away, burned, thrown into the fire. But yet still something remains. The axe is laid to the root, but there's still roots that sink down. There's still something there. This is uh, John the Baptist speaking of Israel. Okay, Israel's still alive. It's not that God has abandoned Israel. They're still there, but a, a severe pruning has taken place is what he's talking about in the New Testament. But jumping back to Job, at the scent of water, it will put out branches like a young plant is what Job says. I think that's interesting, all the, the water imagery, the baptism and this stuff kind of coming together. So Job's God encounter was a watershed moment where he begins to bear fruits of repentance and start to sprout gospel fruit. Right? He sees the, the fruits of the gospel after he has this gospel encounter with God. So we have uh, this idea of reconciliation. Okay, the, the, the first fruits of the gospel in his story is a reconciliation between him and his friends. Well, I guess the first is between him and God, but then you see him and his friends after this, right? There's this kind of fruit that comes out of this moment where he meets with God. The the friends, friends, I should say, the the friends uh, of Job were these same people who have been counseling him all along, giving him empty nothings. We talked about that a little bit last week. Empty nothings, speaking falsehoods, is what Job says. Um, who are not giving him comfort. He, they are not helping at all, and yet. Job is instructed, or they are instructed to go to Job to seek Job's forgiveness in the form of sacrifices. Humbling for them too, right? God says, you guys are wrong. You didn't help at all. Actually, you need to go to the guy that you were saying was wrong and you need to ask for forgiveness from him and offer sacrifices and ask for that guy that you said was wrong to pray for you. Right? Little tables of turn kind of moment, right? Right? So God tells them in Job forty two eight that Job will pray for them and God will accept his intercessory prayer that God might not deal with them according to their follies. They were wrong. And it's Job that's actually going to be their good news for them. And they did that. They, they went to Job and they asked for forgiveness. They offered their sacrifices. And it says in verse 9 in chapter 42 that the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So through this Awful event that happened to Job. Job becomes, in a sense, a minister of reconciliation through his tragedy. Think about that. About how God can bring good from evil. How how so-called friends can be so far apart, and then through the suffering, God brings them closer together in this reconciliation moment where false friends become true friends. This is the power of the gospel working out in people's lives. Okay? And again, we cannot stress the importance of verse 10 enough. Look with me at verse 10 in chapter 42. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. When he had prayed for his friends. That's important to get that reconciliation matter first. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right? There's this reconciliation that has to happen relationally uh, before things can start to heal. Okay, so the, the relational reconciliation, the, the fortunes restored restore two for, twofold, and overall prosperity, we have to see these, though, as fruits of the gospel, not the gospel itself. Okay, that's, that's kind of where I'm going. The stuff is not the gospel. If they were the gospel itself, well, then who is God to remove the gospel from Job at the very beginning of the story, right? Because Job has all the blessings. He's got, he's got the riches. He's, he's the richest man in the land. He's the greatest in the East. If the gospel is that, the health, the wealth, and prosperity of, God, or of Job, then who is God to remove all of that from Job? Rather, God himself is the gospel in the narrative of Job. It's not the stuff. It's God himself and all the fruits and blessings we receive and that Job receives are from his hand. And we must maintain the same posture as Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Either way, if he gives, blessed be the name of the Lord. If he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God removes the hedge of protection from your life and your children tragically pass. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you win the lottery, probably shouldn't be gambling, but if you you win the lottery and you come upon great blessing in life, or your your life is like Job, where your latter days are more blessed than your beginning, blessed be the Lord. Either way, though, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the posture that we are to maintain throughout the book of Job. And this is the way that Job Maintains his integrity through all this. He doesn't curse God and die because his stuff is gone. Because he realizes that all he has is God. God is the gospel. Okay. Now, Job is very interesting because on the one hand, it's the prosperity gospel's worst nightmare. And on the other hand, it better informs many who abhor the prosperity gospel, taking life to be fundamentally tragic and just sad. Okay? If you read the first of the story, you would see that, oh, Job has all his stuff taken away. Well, that, that satisfies the person that says that life is fundamentally tragic and sad. Well, if you read just to the end of the story, then you see, oh, well, no, it's, it's fundamentally happy. It's about the stuff. It's about getting all your stuff back. Where's the balance? Okay? How, do, how do we have the balance? Well, that's actually what the book of Job is a, a lot about. You see, if health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is true then Job's uprightness, blamelessness, turning away from evil, and fearing God are all the perfect formula for health, wealth, and prosperity. right? But as you see, God removes all of that from Job and not because of his sin. Okay? That was actually the accusation of his friends, but God clearly says that his friends spoke wrongly of Job. Okay? So that can't be true because Job maintained his integrity throughout, which proves that health, wealth, prosperity, gospel doesn't work like they think it does. Okay, That's why it's their worst nightmare because it doesn't make – you can't make any sense of the book of Job on that end. But on the other hand, we see that there is, uh, there is hope, and there's hope like a cut-down tree is the way that uh, Job actually portrays himself. Uh, there, there's a natural order of blessings. That does come from faithfully believing and working out our salvation. This is something that we don't often think as much about as Christians. Okay? If you cut the tree, you haven't lost your salvation in Job's theology. Okay? You, you still have it there. The roots remain and they will sprout again in blessing. No matter how many times you cut it, at the spring of water, at the, that hope, there's, there's going to be new life that comes. This is because the gospel supernaturally restores the natural order of creation. Okay, what has been put out of order through sin and evil, the gospel reorders and rebuilds in the kingdom of God. Okay, more balance. We need more balance, though. But okay, this is a constant spiritual war in the kingdom of God. It's it's back and forth, right? It's give, it's take, right? It's it's back and forth all the time because sin is not yet completely defeated. Not completely, but in a sense, uh, uh, there is a sense in which Jesus has triumphed over evil too. Okay? So you have this back and forth, this balance that we have to get to where to we realize that uh, we can't infallibly expect our faith to always attach to health, wealth, and prosperity. We can't infallibly obey the gospel. We can't have all these checks and balances that will promise us health, wealth, and prosperity. But there is a sense in which there are blessings and cursings in life. There is a natural order to things that when we disciple our children, there's promises attached to that. That when you do that, they will live long in the land. Right? When you act wisely in the world and you live out the way that the gospel reorders our life, you can actually expect things like health, wealth, and prosperity. If you take care of your body, you can expect, for the most part, it to be healthy. Right? If you are wise in your finances, you can expect prosperity. But it's not a believe in this and you'll automatically have it all. That, that's where it starts to all crumble. Okay? Believe in Jesus and all your problems go away. That doesn't work. That's not how the gospel works. So we do have a great hope that our latter days will be greater than our beginning because Christ has defeated death at the cross. Satan has been bound according to the scriptures. And the great Leviathan of Revelation is promised to have his head crushed by the blood of the cross. In that sense, all of you that believe in the gospel have a hope that your latter days will be better than your beginning might be in the resurrection. I can't, I can't promise you health, wealth, and prosperity moving forward. But I can promise you that if you read God's word, there is a principles of life. There's wisdom. And that's really the category of the book of Job. That when we read the Bible, there's wisdom to be drawn out of that. That can actually set your life up to live a life of blessing. I don't want to shy away from that because of uh, the, the abuses that health, wealth, and prosperity gospel might bring. I want to give a real sense in which, no, you guys can read the Bible and say, okay, it's not all gloom. I, my household can be healthy, and I can see fruits of that. I can see my children prosper, live long in the land. Those are real promises that I can stand on. I can really believe God's word, and yet that's not my greatest hope. Okay, There's still a greater hope, the hope of my salvation, that I, that I am one with God, and that you can take all that away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's, that's the book of Job for you. So in sum, the, the hope of Job, it's like a cut down tree. A weird way of saying it, right? That's the hope of Job. It's like a cut down tree. Through the sufferings of life, we experience painful loss that has a humbling effect on us. But the gospel hope, the, the roots of the gospel, always remain lively and ready to spring up in us. Even after hardship and suffering, where you feel like, oh my goodness, everything I have just been, has been taken away. Remember the, the hope for Job. You can still spring forth. There's still hope moving forward. Not just the hope in the resurrection. Yes, there is that. Job says after my skin's been destroyed, but yet you read the end, it's like okay, his family's been restored. You can't ever replace the children that have died, but he has more children, right? So it's it's that's not his greatest hope, but there is this real natural blessing that comes with maintaining a, a posture of integrity in your life. Okay, that that's what this book is really trying to show us. That the the gospel gives us this. Uh, I might say optimism that springs forth new life, new fruit in the spirit as we walk in the spirit. So the the gospel is hopeful and fruitful. You should expect fruit of the gospel. So through the whirlwind of life, we encounter the God who's too wonderful. To presume we have figured him out exhaustively—you're not ever going to figure out how uh, the formula works for all of this. It, It's—it's a—it's a maintaining of—it's uh, maintaining a posture of faith because you're not going to get it down to the core and understand this to a logic to where you can just set yourself up to where you're always going to be blessed. We—we we learn that the Lord is blessed through His giving and His taking away, and we become blessed through enduring life uh, of the give and take. That's, thats what life is really about: being all right with the fact that God's sovereign and you're not. Okay, hard pill to swallow, but it's true. It's true. We can't control our lives, and Job certainly understands that. So there's this sense of steadfastness and integrity that we have to have as we walk through life. And this is the way that the apostolic reading of Job is. If you look at James 5, 10 through 11, Job is actually mentioned. How do we we look at the book of Job? How do we think about it? Well, James gives us some direction. James 5, 10 through 11 says this. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers— Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So blessing is those who remain steadfast. Okay? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. is what he says. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord's so God's sovereignty, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Okay, there's, there's a lot there, but I, I just want you to see that the, the thing that the apostolic reading is, is you need to see that Job's steadfast. There's not necessarily a reason for his suffering. He's maintaining his, his integrity, even though we see that the purpose of the Lord is beyond us. It's too wonderful for us, but yet he's also compassionate and merciful through it all. It's a humbling experience. So in the end, no answer is given as to the why for the suffering. I know some of you might have been waiting for it. I can't give you an answer. I can't give you an answer to the problem of evil. But an answer is giving that brings us hope for the future. How we respond to it. That hope is Jesus Christ and the resurrection life he brings. And it's through that hope that Romans says that we are saved provided we suffer for a little while. Maybe not what you wanted to hear, but that's the way the Bible speaks about it. And and through this process, we might not be told why it's happening, but we are told that God is working it together for his good and our glory and our good. Or sorry, his glory and our good. Okay, So our good is definitely in the resurrection. That's a hope that you can stand firm and steadfast in. And his glory is definitely in the resurrection. You can stand firm in God's glory, but even still... Paul desires to know the power of the resurrection working in us presently, and he talks about that. So there's this sense when we come to the book of Job that we, yes, we have an absolute hope in the resurrection, but there's actually still hope for our future, too. That maybe our latter days actually could be blessed twofold, right? That's, that's the story of Job. It ends in a way that we didn't expect, right? You, you, most of the time when we look at Job, we think, what a sad story. But it ends on an actually very, very happy note. And I think that it's meant to leave us with that sense of optimism that, yes, there's the resurrection, but uh, there's also hope for the future. Like like a cut down tree, as odd as that might be. That is the kind of hope that we walk forward with in life. That steadfastness that says that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Job. As we look at it, it puzzles us. We might even say that, like Job, it's something too wonderful for us to even comprehend completely. But we thank you that you give us, um, that you give us postures of faith to take from this. Um, a sense of ease and being all right with the fact that you are sovereign. And that we don't always have an answer to our suffering. That we don't always have an answering as to why. But you do tell us how to maintain our integrity through it all. And that is recognizing that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That when we look at you, you do have a good plan for us. You give us promises that you're working all things together for our good. For those of us who love you. And we do love you, Lord. So I pray, Father, that as we uh, reflect on this passage, uh, I pray that Village Church would apply the book of Job well. Uh, to our lives, that your Holy Spirit indeed would uh, apply it to us, that we might live out the gospel fruitfully in our households, in our lives, and in our communities around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to now uh, continue worship uh, by partaking of the Lord's Supper. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to commune with our God we might think of this as the uh, our moment in worship where we encounter the God who steps out of the whirlwind this humbling moment where we're uh, able to commune with God as holy as he might be and as unholy as we might be and yet he comes to us he descends to us and he speaks to us and he shares himself with us so now let us uh, participate in the Lord's Supper um, by communing on his body and blood